The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, our Creator, when you speak, there is light and life. Fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we may listen to one another, speak the truth in love, and bear much fruit in the service of your kingdom through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. I want to welcome everybody today. Last week we had some discussions about righteousness, and if um, you will recall Andrew's um, sermon last week, it, it kind of went a little bit more beyond just forgiveness. And uh, John got to thinking uh, about it, kind of piecing together parts of our conversation with the sermon. And he had some thoughts he shared with me, but I thought, John, why don't you share them with everybody if you don't mind? Okay. Um, as Steve said, Frank's question got us talking around the table about the nature of righteousness. And then I heard something in the sermon that I thought kind of shone a light on it, or at least on the God's righteousness part of the discussion rather than the us righteousness. And I, maybe y'all heard it too. Um, he, the, the dean spoke in the sermon about um, about two words that that show up in the in, in the in the liturgy together. And those are um, absolution and remission. And the two of them together are important because they don't mean the same thing. Absolution we all get. I mean, that's a word that we instinctively understand because we hear it in it's forgiveness. And, you know, I'm absolved. And that was the point of the... Of the um, the parable in last week's reading that was the subject of the sermon the, the debt that could not be repaid that the king forgave the 10,000 talents of some that could never be repaid but the other part of it remission is a little bit confusing to us because we usually only hear that term in in the medical context I'm in remission for five years and therefore my doctors say that I'm cured but that's confusing when it's applied to sin because no believer, or at least no believer who's not really, really naive, believes that sin goes away. I've been a believer for a lot more than five years, but I'm not foolish enough to think that my sinfulness has gone away. It hasn't. So what sense does remission apply to sin? Well, if we get a bill in the mail, it probably on the bottom line reads, please pay this amount. But in the old days, a bill would probably read on the bottom line, please remit. And it's that sense that remission is applied. It's the payment of the debt. And if we understand that it's not only that the nature of God and the nature of righteousness is not only the forgiveness, but also the payment, then we understand something really, really important about the nature of God. You know, if God was just some celestial Santa Claus doling out favors to his favored children, then pretty much one religion would be just as good as another because, after all, it's just about forgiveness. But it isn't just about forgiveness. There's also this debt that's got to be settled. And that's the important thing to know about God, that just this forgiveness alone is not in the nature of our God. There's also this 
this thirst for right for for justice that's part of his righteousness and we're about to get into several chapters about God's wrath and it's that context that we understand God's demand for payment and so because there is this demand for payment not just any religious idea will do uh, so to understand that God demands payment as well as God offers forgiveness is to understand why only the cross would do it. And it gets us back around to a point that we made at the end of last year in our post-resurrection stories when Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but by me. He was actually offering this great hope that our righteousness can't do it. It can't get us to the Father, and the law can't get us to the Father, and Krishna consciousness can't get us to the Father, but he can. That is, that God's sense of justice was so great that the only thing that would pay that debt was the cross. And the, only the, the, the cross by himself, in the, in the form of his son, would do it. So that's why... I, I, the, the sermon mentioned that, that Cranmer was very insistent that, that the liturgy refer not only to absolution but also to remission. And that's the important duality and I'm glad that he did because it keeps it in front of us that the, the, this God has more than just the, the Santa Claus forgiveness nature. It's also this demand for justice and that's the Old Testament God that some modern Christians would say it's been superseded, but which our understanding says is not. It's still the nature of God. Question. What's the difference between remission and satisfaction? Satisfaction? We use that in the way of Well, I would, I don't think that, in, in the sense of the satisfaction of the debt, is it like remission? I would say it's like the remission. It's like payment. <clears throat> There's one thing that I don't know if you mentioned in his sermon not being here, but he mentioned in Bible study Thursday morning. Look at the difference in the prayer of consecration between Rite 1 and Rite 2. And Rite 1 is the Cranmerian language for the remission of sins, you know, <clears throat> which is shed for you and for many for the remissions of sins. If you go to Rite 2, it's, they soften it up and it's forgiveness of sins, which, and he said that is... That's the reason many people prefer right one, because it is it's it's the fuller, more exact Cranmerian language and more expresses what we what we we believe as Episcopalians and Anglicans. I agree. I think it's closer the right one language is closer to the scriptural theology that was exactly. what what really drove the English reformers. Mm -hmm. I think what you just said about righteousness is very good. I mean, really, it's, it's very helpful to me personally. But I, I still have a question. Of, we use the word righteousness a lot. If I say, or you say, that that guy is righteous, what is that saying about him? That's a righteous man. What does that mean in the context of what you just got through saying? Well, it's a pale shadow of the real righteousness, which is God's. But that's really what Romans is was written to address to help us understand this unreachable theological focus point 
and what our striving for it means as we hunger and thirst after righteousness what does it mean so so hold your question Frank. Well, I remember one thing that Paul Zoll said that I thought was really interesting and, he, and I think it's true that it's a lot easier for you for a person to believe that somebody else's sins are forgiven than it is to believe that their own sins are forgiven and I just I mean I think that's true I mean I, well, I would submit to you that that is the first step toward righteousness. If you go back to the Sermon on the Mount when Christ was laying out the in the Beatitudes, the, the first step is blessed are those who mourn, who realize how sinful that they are. That's the first step of, of the process that the Beatitudes describes. So we've got a whole year to, to talk about this, Frank. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> whole year through. and a few no, months, we're, probably. We're, and we're not through either. No. No, well, I thought it was said that none is righteous but Jesus. So if you say that somebody is a righteous man, they might be appearing to be a certain way, but your focus is not on them, but on who is the true righteous one. And 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 when you say it's easy to see somebody else being forgiven, I would challenge that uh, allow somebody to come in and do something very bad or evil towards you and think is do I really think their sins um, are easily forgiven? Not by me, maybe. No, no, no. But, but you were saying, you know, it's easier to think somebody else's sins are forgiven than about your own. But as soon as as soon as that entrance comes to you of someone um, doing something that's not so good. Uh, I think that's where the study back from. <laughs> <laughs> you mean, you mean you're saying that God's going to forgive Mrs. Hart to get that? No, no, no. He was saying that, that, that you can see others being forgiven. I can accept. Accept others, but you can't accept yourself. Well, which, but I bet you can. Because I, 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 otherwise, you'd be calling God lies. So. <laughs> Looking back at uh, in Romans um, chapter one verse seventeen, the latter part of it, it says the righteous shall live by faith. So that means you know that the right standing that we have with God. It's a person I think that that perceives what God has done for them and appreciates that remission. That they have been forgiven, because you know, in, in talking about it, I, I was thinking, Frank, as you said, uh, about you accept forgiveness for other people, but sometimes you have a hard time seeing it for yourself. Well, in Andrew's sermon, he talked about having spelt the punch on the neighbor's uh, carpet, and you know, uh, the 
And she, she tried to get it out and couldn't, and every time he came over there, he'd look at it, and she kept telling him, you've been forgiven, it's all right. But he'd see that spot. And so that, you know, that was a struggle for him. That was satisfied him, I don't believe. <laughs> <laughs> well, he said it was Cabernet Sauvignon he spilled over. Well, <laughs> well um, anyway, moving on. Um, the uh, want to read. We're, we're still in chapter one, and um, want to, someone to read verses twenty-four through uh, chapter. Uh, excuse me, verse five of chapter two. Because even though there's a division there, I think that they really flow in a part, part and parcel of, of each other. So, someone would read chapter one, verses twenty-four through chapter two, verse five. Coffee, we appreciate it. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about, about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on one another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who are judge, you who judge these those who do such things and yet do them themselves to yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because your heart, because your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Thank you. I'm, I guess I've been running my mouth so much I lost touch where we were. I'm talking about, was this Act 1? No, Romans. Romans. Don't worry, Frank. I, I bet Charles can edit that well, out. Well, the was lost too, so. <laughs> okay, in Romans, Romans chapter 1, verse 24. Therefore God gave them up. Three times Paul says this. In 24, he gave them up to the lust of their hearts. In 26, he gave them up to dishonorable passions. In 28, God gave them up to a debased mind. 
he's looking at and talking to them about adultery. It's they have they refuse to see God as the center of all. They have is in verse 25, they have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. I mean, that started in the garden when God, who created, gave them and told them what they could do and the one thing they couldn't do. So the snake comes along and goes, ah, it's not a big deal. Go ahead and eat the apple. And then... So they, in effect, were listening to and believing the lie of the snake, the, a creature. And, you know, Paul had, has talked about, and, and we'll talk about in various uh, other epistles, how they worship stone statues, wood carvings, whatever, something that had been created and not the God who created it all. And so they were wandering away from, you know, their sin, individual sin, is the failure to really praise God as the giver of everything good. Now, his purpose in talking about this, and while he gets uh, into 24, um, 24 through 27 about the relationship of women that are contrary to nature or men that give up natural relations with women. He's talking about how sin goes away from God's design, not just for the relationship between male and female, but between all things. He starts there, and then, of course, as he gets down to 28, he just talks about others. You know, God created man and woman for each other. I mean, you know, we go back to Genesis 1 through 3, and he talks about the creation of man, man being lonely, man needing a partner, Adam and Eve, and what they were to do. And that was to be a couple, to have children, and to worship him. And they did for a while, but then they got off track. God's purpose you know, was different than what man was making it out to be. And some of this in 26, from a historical standpoint, Nero was emperor at the time this letter's been written. And Nero would have, as we read in history, he had relationships with young boys, but at the same time, he had bizarre heterosexual activities and orgies and all those sort of things. So here again, it's not just getting outside the planned relationship that God has because, you know, it's heterosexual. God's purpose is, is outside of that. And I brought, this is a... Phillips head screwdriver, and of course all of us know what it's used for. But I could use it for other things. I could take this screwdriver and say the 95 thesis and go up, you know, the end of October and pop the 95 thesis on the door. Well, I would ruin probably the head of this Phillips head, and I couldn't use it for the purpose intended. 
Well, that's what's happening. I mean, it's kind of a bad illustration, but he's, he, and Paul, is talking about the relationship being used for something other than the purpose intended. And that's how society has drifted away and gone toward evil. Um, some of these same things that were happening in Paul's time that he's talking about, Plato had even written about how sustained love for men was a problem. And you, you, I, I kind of had to almost chuckle here. You know, Paul's talking about it. Of course, Abraham and rescue and lot, it's there. And it's obviously in the news a lot today. So it's almost like what's new. It's just as we see new historical documents found and whatnot, we go, okay, <laughs> it's, it's been happening. And that's part of the worshiping the creature and not the creator. And then he, in, in 28, he says, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And he's got a list that's just partial to envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And we could probably... That's a pretty encompassing list, but I think if we worked at it, we could add more. But he's saying there are any number of things that separate us from God, and he gives us up to that, but at the same time, he's giving us opportunity after opportunity to reverse. And when we talk about that he's a kind God, you know, sometimes people ask, well, if he's kind, why did he let that happen? He's kind because he gives us the opportunity to turn from our ways in spite of what we do time and time again. He's given us a path to him through Jesus. And we as mankind, it's easier in a lot of ways to satisfy whatever, you know, it says up there dishonorable passions, but whether it be passions or uh, the things listed here in 28, 29, 30 that people would do. And, you know, if you want to think about this list that he's got here in 28, okay, so we hadn't done what's up in 26. But it doesn't matter. You know, this list, you can start by filling out who's done it just about looking in a mirror. And you ain't got to look around any room or down your street in your neighborhood or anywhere else. It's everybody's doing it. And it's those that look at and accept the righteousness, the opportunity to accept that which God has given us that allows us to move toward him. Um, therefore, you have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges. You know, we see 
what's going on around us. I mean, it's it's there in front of us, and we, you know, don't go with it. Human uh, behavior tries to tell us we can get away from it, but we can't. And he goes on, you condemn yourself because you practice the very same thing you're condemning for somebody. You know, I, you go back to, and I, I think about this, um, you know, Christ talked about how you have committed adultery by just thinking, how you committed by murder by how you respond to somebody or speak about them or think about them. It's not just the physical act of pulling a trigger or, or putting a knife or whatever. It's, it's the thinking. It's the thoughts. And so when we sit and pass judgment on somebody, we need to look at our own selves. You know, judge not that ye be judged. And that's what's happening. Paul is pointing that out in a little different way. We'll see you shortly, John, for those of us going to 11. Um, and he, he talks about also in there is that, you know, we see those things that are there. You know, God's decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. You know, it becomes accepting sometimes. You know, sometimes you can, you know, say discipline a child. Well, you know, you're talking to your child. Well, and they point to their sibling or their neighbor down the street and said they did it and they didn't get into trouble. That doesn't make it right. But sometimes we use that about giving, you know, and so we acquiesce to it. Well, that's giving approval to it. You allow others to continue in it. And also we can use that as our own excuse for, well, they did it, so I can do it. They got away with it. I'll probably get away with it. No. And these decrees that God has, it's how to build the fabric um, that God wants us in, they're not just written. You know, there, there wasn't a law until Moses. But the patriarchs understood what God wanted. Abraham accepted by faith. He saw that what God was telling him, and he understood what God was telling him, is how he needed to proceed. The law came along to kind of help men see what they needed to do because they were starting to get away from that. And so you don't have the excuse just because there's no law written down. Um, God, in providing these opportunities for us, He's giving us that opportunity of life itself. God when he gives them up, it's not just in itself death now, it's the final death. Now, when God gives them up, he's giving them up in the final, in the future death of that to come. Um, you know, God's, and, and here I thought back too also about judging others and judging them. 
to in John, um, in the Gospel of John, where Christ is there and they're getting ready to stone the woman. And what does he say? You who are without sin can cast the first stone, and what happens? They all depart. Because they finally, they, they see what's in them. It's easy to condemn until somebody like Christ makes that comment, and then you see your own self there. Um, God's kindness here is toward the path of life with him. That you will escape the, you know, excuse me, I'm starting too far ahead. You who, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them themselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? In some ways, he's talking to the Jews here in the Roman church. They believed being God's chosen, they were already there. There was, you know, it was that his kindness and forbearance, they were his. And the other didn't really matter. But he's telling them that that kindness that he is showing is what helps lead them to repentance. And that is something both in the Roman church and to us today, but to the, to the Jews in the Roman church and to the Greeks in the Roman church, it led to repentance, and it was that kindness. Because we get down and, and you know, where's the time? Yeah. In verse 11, it's God shows no impartiality. And so he's telling as much the, the Jewish um, Christians in Rome that they can't rely on the presumption that their election gets them there. It's God's kindness that leads them to repentance. But because of your hard and impotent hearts, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That's the final death. That if they are not, you know, that's the one when God gives them up to wrath that it really comes back to, where God has rejected their kindness, or his kindness. Then in Romans 6 through 11, and this gets to some of what we talked about last week, some. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who know, do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good the Jew first, and also the Greek, for God shows no impartiality. The work here, you know, we, we have discussions a lot, whether it's in here or outside of here, about the role of works. 
and works in and of themselves are not what Paul's talking about here or anywhere else really. It's that it's that obedience that works come through obedience through regeneration by the Holy Spirit. I can go out and do good works, but for those who are self-seeking, you know, I can go and serve the poor, feed the hungry, but if I'm doing it for that pat on the shoulder, I'm not doing it for obedience that from the regeneration from the Holy Spirit. So it's the type of works that he's talking about here, he being Paul, that God looks and judges by. And so there when he says that the tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, it's not just going out and doing what's on this list in verses, uh, chapter 1 and verses, what, 30 through, uh, or 29 through 30, it's, you can be doing acts of kindness, but if you're doing them for a self-serving purpose, it gets you nowhere. And you're misguided if you think that, because by doing those good acts with those self-serving purposes, you're really not doing it. You're trying to do works to favor good, to favor God and gain favor. But, if you're doing them for glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, then you will get that um, righteousness for God shows no impartiality. He doesn't care what your ethnicity is, your economic standing, your race, your tribe, whatever. It's your right standing with him. Now, yes, it's to the Jew first, but condemnation is to the Jew first also. I mean, they were God's chosen, and if they accept Christ as their Savior, then yeah, they're kind of at the front of the line. But if they don't, they're at the front of the line also. You know, it's, it doesn't matter if you go into the pit first or last, you're in the pit. And sometimes, as we say, you know, getting into heaven is not whether you're on the front row, at least if you're in the nosebleed section, you're in. Well, question. Uh, <laughs> boy, I was going to say, I don't know what's worse, one from Dick or from Frank, but when they both yeah. gang up. <laughs> yeah, we got to cut this off. Um, it says in the, in the gospel, or Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but through me. Mm-hmm. All right? And here it says, you will run there. I mean, don't you see a conflict? I mean, that's my confusion. It says, no, he will render to each one according to his works. Works or faith. I mean, I, and, and I've always been taught in this church that faith is, is the real deal. And, and that if you have faith, I mean, if you feel like you've been saved or you really have turned your life over, so to speak, to Christ, then you will automatically do good works. That's right. That's, that's why I was saying a second ago, it's the works you do in obedience through your regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Okay? So to have that regeneration, you, have had, you would have needed to have accepted Christ, and you're doing those things out of obedience and thanksgiving as opposed to going through and just doing works. But you see, this says that you will be, you, you will be 
treated according to your works, rather than then say you didn't, we were treated according to your faith. I mean, that's, that's, maybe I'm. Well, we go down a little bit further and talk about self-seeking. So that's that's the difference. This is your Monday. This is the passage from your Monday. Man. That's where he gets it right here. Yeah. Yes, I don't know. Well, yeah. Luther said, I think, that there's no way to do stuff without self-seeking. That even if you're doing it because of faith, your faith is motivated somehow or other by self-seeking. We said, I think Gil said that, for example. I don't think Luther says that. That, that would almost be contrary to what I know of Luther. He just said you can't, there's no way to be good. Next week, we will continue with uh, God's judgment and the law and uh, in Romans. And uh, have a good week, and look forward to seeing you all next week. Thank you much. Thank you.